0: Hello, Welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass Podcast. Today, I have with me a very special guest, a big fan of slow news. I have Kevin Clark of The Ringer fame. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: I'm so glad to be here, Liam.
0: Oh, I'm very glad to hear it. And as always, Kevin, we're just going to launch right into it and we're going to get your career, your experiences and the, you know, the interesting path that you took. Uh, but it, as always, it just starts with the very simple question. When did you realize that sports journalism was a thing that you wanted to do?
1: Oh, I still haven't realized it. Wait, I'm in sports journalism. Oh no. Um, uh, I, I, More or less. It was very, it was very gradual. Um, so both my parents were journalists. My grandfather was a journalist um, starting in like the 1930s. I had an uncle who was a journalist. And so journalism was always around me. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a handful of years I didn't want to be a writer. At one point I wanted to be in a punk rock band. At one point I wanted, like when I was like, 15, I read Moneyball and wanted to be a baseball GM for a summer, and then realized I didn't want to be a baseball GM pretty quickly. Um, But other than that, like writing was always around me. And, you know, I would read these books when I was younger, and I was like, oh, wow, I really want to do this. You know, like you'd read David Halbertson. I remember getting a David Halbertson book one time and just reading it like in one sitting on a a weekend day or whatever. Um, So I just realized very quickly that sports journalism is just really fun. And, you know, when you run journalists, you realize like, Oh, wow. You get paid to go to the Olympics. Oh, wow. You get paid to go to the Super Bowl. Like that's pretty fun. And I, I was always just influenced by not only the great work that it was around, but also just like the the fun opportunities that were at your fingertips and, and obviously listen, that was a different era. Like when I, when I was coming up, you know early 2000s, mid-2000s or whatever it was, newspapers still had a big budget. Um, there were a bunch of magazines that would compete with each other that, that still had a big budget and they would send people to the Olympics. like I, I don't think that there's a ton of newspapers uh, traveling to, to the Olympics right now. I don't think there's a ton of newspapers that put people on the road for training camps stuff like that. It was just- different era um the internet wasn't really a, a dominant force like that uh but it was still it still had a huge impact on me
0: Oh, for sure was there any i mean given the fact that you talked somewhat fondly about your early childhood i can't imagine there was but was there any like familiar familial pressure about kind of going into the family business no big nature there? none
1: yeah. none but what i would say so the orlando sentinel in i don't know let's say 2003 so mm-hmm. let's look at their staff over the over the course of, of a couple of years. They had Jeff Darlington covering the Gators. They had Jamel Hill as a columnist. They had Charles Robinson on staff. They had Rick Mace, who's now at the Washington Post. And I remember just like reading like Rick Mace like got an interview with OJ Simpson and like to do like he just door stepped him at a uh, autograph signing and like got him for an hour. And you're reading this and you're like 15 years old and you're like Jesus, this is good. <laughs> and and I just Joe Shad was on staff like all of those guys. And you're reading the sports section and I, i'm not going to make any comparisons to some of the the best sports sections of all time or anything but i just remember reading this and just being like this is something that i'd like to aspire to and 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 those guys are and and, and you know th- those almost me again, sorry, answer um and those people who are on that staff um are, you know, there's still stars all over the place, um, in the sports media industry. And so there wasn't any pressure, but it was more just like when you were growing up in that market, uh, you just got to read really good stuff all the time. It's like, wow, I want to do this.
0: Yeah, I think in uh, talking to other reporters for this podcast, that's definitely a huge part of it is that if you go, if you don't, you know, wake up one day when you're 15 or whatever, and you're like, I yeah. want to be a sports journalist, a lot of it is about kind of where you grew up and the work that other reporters do that you just naturally are surrounded by just by virtue of where you are. Yes. Your
1: yeah, 100%. And like in the opportunities and you know, I probably lucked out in the sense of Florida has a ton of pro sports teams, college teams, there were opportunities there. I was covering teams when I was in college. And, it, you know, you have, what, seven probably quote unquote big league teams in South Florida where I was living for college. If you count the Miami Hurricanes, which is a national brand mm-hmm. you know, it's stuff like that. Uh, things would come through all the time, tennis, golf, whatever, like there are opportunities for a young journalist there. And so, yeah, it is a hundred percent, uh, geography. There's an old saying, geography is destiny, right? Um, and and I kind of feel like Florida was a great, great place for young sports journalists to grow up.
0: That might be the most romantic way anybody's talked about Florida in a long time.
1: Hey, I, I will talk about Florida romantically for as long as you'd like. I'm a big, big proponent <laughs> of Florida. I think the, the, the chaos of it lends itself to being a good journalist, right? Like uh, Carl Hiaasen, who writes these novels, but also is a columnist. Like he he, he he used to talk so often about just how ridiculous Florida was. And you just kind of got this kind of gallows humor about the entire state. And I think once you're in, my, my thing is once you're in on the joke of Florida and realize what it is and how ridiculous it is, you'll have a much better time in Florida.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I think the way that you described the chaos of it all kind of really lends credence to the whole idea here. What was the first team you covered?
1: Great question. So uh, it's kind of a, a moving target. So I went to DePaul University um, for one year and worked at the desk, of the Chicago Tribune, didn't really cover a team, went to a couple of White Sox games, some freelance experience. And then uh, in 2007, so as a sophomore in college. Um, I went down to South Florida to work for the Sun Sentinel and they, there was a hugely lucky break, which is Alex Marvez, who uh, is awesome. Now does AEW. He had left for Fox sports the day I, I became an intern. So they needed just a body at Dolphins training camp. I was 19, whatever it was. And they just sent me there and they're just like, get quotes. And newspapers being what they were, it took them a while to fill a position. And I just kept going back and going back and going back and getting in the Dolphins locker room and, and running quotes for Omar Kelly and Harvard Alcove and Dave Hyde. And then they were just like, do you want to stay and not go back to college for a semester, do an extended kind of fellowship type thing mm-hmm. and essentially cover the Dolphins on a daily basis. I did other stuff. I did heat, I did hurricanes, all that stuff. Um, but I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And so the two thousand, the first team I ever covered was 2007 Dolphins. Um, and if you remember that, that was the year after Sabin, that was Cam Cameron. It was absolute despair. They went one in 15. Uh, <laughs> they almost went 0 in 16. And being in that locker room, actually, I actually kind of feel like it helped me a little bit because there was no, there were no stories to tell in that locker room. Like if you walked in on a daily basis, you're just like, what am I going to do? What am I write about? Jesse, Jesse Chapman is the third running back. Like, Oh wow. Cleo, Cleo Lemons had two positive games in a row in losses, you know, to the jets. <laughs> like is that what we're going to write about. And, and so you had to really dig and you had to sort of, Go into it and say like, okay, there's obviously nothing to do about winning here. There's no star players like Ted Ginn, the first round pick, doesn't even look that good. You're gonna have to find the story um, that 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 doesn't really exist on the surface. And is it being the third quote unquote beat writer, even though I was still an intern, mm-hmm. the number one story, you know, Ricky Williams came back that year. Okay, well, the number one beat writer's got that story, and then something else, number two beat writer will have the second biggest story. So if you're the number three guy at Dolphins camp you're going to have to scramble and, and use a part of your brain that most people don't have to use. I, I kind of feel like it, it helped me a lot.
0: For sure. Do you remember any one particular story that stands out from that season that really demonstrates what you're talking about as far as using that different part of your mind and really having to dig? Yeah. Down?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I, I remember I, I did a piece about, um, you would do profiles of guys that didn't necessarily matter if that makes sense like I remember Sam Congato was on the Dolphins um that year for for a cup of coffee and he played for the Packers the year before and he was training to be a doctor in the offseason so it's like okay let's just let's just do as much as we can like you know one of the things best advice my parents gave me was whatever job you're doing do it to the best of your ability so if I'm writing a Sam Congato profile I'm gonna write the best damn Sam Congado profile I possibly can um, so stuff like that uh, I remember writing a feature about players who were their own agents um, because there were a handful of them in the Dolphins' locker room because there were a lot of those guys were on minimum salaries and they just representing themselves. Um, and it was just it was an interesting it was just an interesting year. I mean, Dante Kolbeck was supposed to be on the team and he was barred from the training facility. Um, I remember that also. Ronnie Brown uh, br- tore ACL that year. And I remember, for whatever reason, Ronnie Brown ended up giving me like 20 minutes just to talk about the rehab, and all we talked about was the mental part of it because everyone had talked about the 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 um, physical part of it every single time. Every single time it was just how's the knee, is it 80 percent, whatever. And I realized that no one had said like what What is this mental rehabilitation like for, for Ronnie Brown?" And so I just remember talking to him for a while about that, where it's okay, I'm actually afraid to make cuts or I'm afraid to make the same move that led to the ACL. And you have to remember, Ronnie Brown was. The best player on the Dolphins at that point, Nick Saban. Excuse me, Bill Belichick had said at one point that that Ronnie Brown in 2007 was the best player he'd seen all year. Um, so he was like a superstar down there. And so it's it's not just okay, we're going to do the different angles on less less famous players. It was when you're dealing with the more famous guy, you have to find an angle no one's asked about.
0: Did you know when you were showing up for your internship that that's what you were going to do? Because I know you said he left. No, the- no. was that something that was set up, or you just sort of no? This is what we got to do. Oh man. How do you know I
1: I they <laughs> sent me there? It was great. I mean, like Omar Kelly and Harvey Yakov were great beat writers to to learn from. They were so gracious and courteous. And you know, I remember doing like I, I did a whole thing on the, um, another example is like, I did a, a thing on the practice squad, how it felt to be on the practice squad when it's the worst team in football. You can't even make the team when it's the worst team in football. I, I obviously I was a little nicer than that, yeah. but it's like that kind of stuff. And, and those guys empowered me to do that. And I, I kind of think the finding a good mentor and, and kind of going through with Dave Hyde to me um, was a genius. He's, he's still there, he's a sports columnist, he's awesome. Um, and he kind of taught me kind of whatever it takes to to write a good story, you, you have to do. And he could write a great column, he could write a great feature. And so coming up in the industry, I was just so, so lucky to get those kind of breaks.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, obviously sometimes it's just a matter of right place at the right time. You couldn't take it in. Yeah, a well, things. I'll
1: tell you, I'll tell you, I started at the same time as this other intern. Two guys started on the same day and I want to put this guy on blast. He's not in the industry, but I was helped because they were divvying up the spots Mm. and the other for like this guy gets this this guy gets this and the other guy was like he was from Miami and I wasn't and he was like you know I really I don't want to work nights because I'm I don't want to sit in traffic (laughs) and the editors were like the editors were like oh like this guy actually isn't like sports is that means you can't go to a Marlins game. That means you can't go to a Heat game. That means you can't go to an a, a late afternoon Dolphins practice. And so that I
0: actually got insert it. kind of like yeah. hand in hand. I mean, what do you do? And
1: so <laughs> and so I ended up getting his his game load too. And so I was basically guys. So I would do Dolphins in the afternoon and then Marlins at night or something like that. Um, but my advice to young journalists is do not uh, do not tell your bosses that you're afraid of traffic.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that definitely starts you off on the wrong foot for sure. And then what happened after that? I mean, that after you were done covering that season. The
1: next- yeah. So I had to finish college. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I was able to kind of come to an agreement where I was sort of a correspondent, what they call a correspondent, with, with the Sun Sentinel. So I was able to cover, I was at the University of Miami by at this point and transferred. So I covered the hurricanes every Friday. Um, and then I would cover the dolphins Excuse me. I would cover the Dolphins every Friday, and then I would cover the Hurricanes like during the week after practice. Go out to Green Tree. That was the Randy Shannon era. Class Campbell was the tail end of that. Um, trying to think, Sam Shields was on that team. Those kind of guys. Um, good, but not kind of glory years. Mm-hmm. Miami teams. But I was close to the Heat, so I was able to to drive to there for practice when they needed me. And so I was just up for whatever. Um, I actually, I'm going to sound completely really insane, um, but I basically consolidated my my class load so that. Uh, I was only really going to class two 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 and a half days a week, basically, so that, that I could be available for whatever. Like, I knew I wanted to be a sports journalist so badly that I would drop everything. And, like, I would skip class all the time to go. And and if it was a journalism class, they understand. I'd be like, hey, guys, I really have to go to heat <laughs> practice. And if it's, like, an intro to journalism out there, I'm like, yeah, that's actually more valuable. But um, I was kind of a lunatic about, about just trying to do as much sports journalism as possible. And I would also say that when you're in those environments, you get to meet people who are really important to you. Um, you know, I'm my hero, my absolute hero was Lee Jenkins. And I remember meeting Lee Jenkins at a heat practice when I was in college, and I, and that was just a great relationship to have. And so um, I, I think that that's just being, you know, 99% of, of life really is just showing up and, and being there and being present and saying yes to everything. And I, yeah, it, it, it all worked out.
0: Be right back with more gold after a word from our sponsors. The Press Pass podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com and use the code FANSIDED20 to get a discount on the Performance Package 4.0. The brand new lawnmower 4.0 is here to take the podium. The fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin Save technology. This package also comes with a weed whacker to chop your worst weeds up top in both your nose and your ear. This tool is a lock to take home gold in the biathlon. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code fansighted20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code fansighted20 at manscaped.com. It does sound like this, this, the time in college that you had really helped. I mean, maybe not calling it networking might not encompass everything about it, but I mean, it really yeah. helped a lot of relationship building and that sort of thing from all these people that you grew up reading.
1: Yeah. And then, so you get the opportunities. And then what happened to me was, so I was at a heat practice on a random Friday or whatever. This is 20, 2009. And um, Michael Beasley just randomly in a press conference was like, Hey, uh, no one ever taught me how to play defense. And I was just like, pardon me? I like, he, he just talk, I, he, he talked about how like, basically the, the basketball AAU system had failed him to the point that he got to the NBA and had huge holes in his game. And no one realized because of the um, athleticism that he had and all that stuff. So he was basically complaining about it. And I pitched it to my editors and they were kind of like, well, we have done the Beasley story. So I was still a freelancer. So I called the Wall Street Journal who had just launched the sports section. So I was still a junior in college. And I said, Hey, do you guys want the story? And they, I, I Lord knows why they said yes, but they did say yes. And that's, that started the relationship. And then when I got out of college a year later, they, they hired me. So I wrote a handful of freelance stories for them, kept in touch and then got offered a job to be their Nick's writer, um, Knicks slash Jets writer, uh, when, when it launched, when, it, when they launched a new New York section a year later.
0: Why was, why the wall street journal? Why was that the one you decided to pitch to?
1: Well, I just, I read, they just launched a sports section and I saw that they were writing stories that were just a bit different, a little bit weird. And so when I joined the journal, I found out why. So they had this editor, Sam Walker, who um, I had a really good relationship with. And he instilled it in us to be a little weird. He used to say, if you go to press conferences, don't be in the pack. Do not be in the pack. Be, be somewhere else, pumping somebody else for information that nobody else is thinking about. Right. And for me, I, I, you know The best advice he ever, he ever gave me, and I think about it all the time, was he said that your story should be so unique and so interesting that the first quote in every story should be, I've never seen anything like it. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like it, the, the, the story should be so interesting and new that the people you're talking to are just like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. That's the only story you should write. Now, listen, we all have the realities of the business, and you have to write more than the good ideas you have, but that's what you should be aspiring to, is like the perfect thing. And so I was just this extremely dumb 24-year-old, uh, 23, whatever. And I got there and they were all writing the stories I thought I could write. It took me a while to get there. Like I, I really. right. Having a high bar for yourself, like they do with the journal, like that, that does take a while. And so there was a six month period there where I thought that I came to work expecting to get fired. Uh, It turns out that that was actually never on the table. I remember running that past. I'm really close with with one of the other editors. I was like, man, when I was first there, I thought they were going to fire me. And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, So uh, that was, that was kind of my education really early on was a, a sports section where they, they wanted to do things differently. And that, that, that's what helped me a lot, and the the bar to get in the paper was really, really high, and I you just had to sort of set new standards for yourself, and and that's why I'm just forever in debt to to the Wall Street Journal.
0: And you left college at kind of an interesting time in terms of the media industry as a whole. Yeah. It's like kind of the end of the newspaper era, but it's not dead yet. And you worked at newspapers in college, and then it's like the start of the online era, but yeah, no,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: It looks like or anything. So I mean, when you left college and you decided to go work for the Wall Street Journal, where was your mindset at as far as the future of journalism and that sort of thing? If you had that sort of foresight to think about it as a you know immediate post-college graduate.
1: Yeah. So I probably thought maybe that. I probably didn't have that much of a plan, except that the Wall Street Journal was a no-brainer. Like that—that's yeah. not something you yeah, think about for, for very long, um, especially the sports section that was launching and we could do interesting stuff with it. I would say that even when I was, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I remember there were people in journalism classes who were just like, "Don't go into journalism. Journalism's dying. Don't don't try to work for a newspaper." And I I thought the odds were against me to get a, a newspaper job, but it's funny. I was in Miami. I was back in Miami, like. I don't know, uh, last two summers ago, um, pre-COVID. And I was just walking around, I was, my wife and I were going to some of, some of my, the old restaurants they should go to and stuff. And I was just thinking about how like, the Wall Street Journal offered me a job out of college, it, it changed my expectations on things, but but I actually thought I was just gonna stay in Miami and just like cover the hurricanes for five years. Like I thought that I was gonna have a traditional, mm. um, so like, I, I, I'll just tell the story, I don't think I've ever told the story, but when I was in college, I emailed um, David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker, and he didn't know who I was, and I was just like, hey, I just read King of the World, which is an amazing, ugly book. Like, any advice you have for somebody who kind of wants to be like you, but sports. And he said in the email, he was like, this is 2009, I guess. He was just like, hey, I would tell you to go on the ladder, but the sports journalism ladder, but the ladder doesn't exist anymore. Like, there's no ladder anymore. It's just a not. And 10 years prior, I would have been able to go to the Miami Herald, the South Florida Sound Sentinel, the Orlando Sentinel, Jacksonville, Times Union, Tampa Bay Tribune, cover a college team for five years and then get a national job with that paper for five years because they would still send people around the country. And then at age 33, you would be able to get, you know, so if you're talking '90s, you're talking Sports Illustrated. I don't know. Listen, I'm just I'm just talking about the, the, the dream, right? Yeah. Uh, you're talking about Sports Illustrated in the '90s. You're talking about you know ESPN.com in 2001, whatever it is. That was the the old trajectory. And by the time I came out, that that trajectory didn't exist. Like that was not newspapers weren't adding like local newspapers weren't adding being a local beat writer is still I think extremely fruitful experience it's just less predictable than it used to be like if you were in the 80s and you started out at, at age 23 as a, as a college beat writer you knew the trajectory and I still think that, that some of the best writers on the planet are, are are sports beat writers it's just harder and harder to see like okay are they going to get promoted with their own paper are they going to have to go to a website are they going to go have to do their own podcast are they going to do a substack? Like that, it just doesn't, the latter doesn't, it's just completely different now. It doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting talking to you because I talked to Ira Winderman for this podcast. Uh, oh, yeah. my guy. guy, yeah. And he laid out exactly what you just said about the path of like getting the job at the local paper covering the college here for five years. He had some crazy
1: things to say about the hurricanes of those years, by the way.
0: Um, but it's- a lot, it, a
1: lot of people have- a lot of things, crazy things to say about the hurricane those
0: years. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's the parallel. It's like you, you know, you just laid out that whole path that Ira took, and you were just talking off the cuff, and that was just how it was done. And then yeah. you're coming up in the same, like, in the same state and sort of the same, like, circle with the newspaper that you worked at in college. And then you just took the different path. You took, you skipped the ladder. You just went through it. I mean, I don't know what the new fucking metaphor would be for it instead of a ladder, but it's not chaos or anything. And yeah. it, you, you just took flew off to a different area. It was uh, I mean it worked out obviously but was
1: 100%. Yeah, it, but there was no plan. There was no plan. It was never like I'm going to go to the journal and I'm going to go here and here and here. Like imagine Grantland didn't exist mm. when the was journal launched. And so how was I supposed to know that like, you know, in 6 years Bill Simmons was my one of my heroes growing up. And I read him from the time I was 15. I was actually just talking to somebody about this the other day. i um, just reading him when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17. But if you had told me, if you had stopped time in 2003 and said, you're going to be working for this guy, I'd be like, doing what? Like that, that didn't make any sense that a writer would have this thing, but Bill was, was such a force that he's able to build two things that everybody loved. He's able to build a podcasting company, which by the way, podcast didn't exist in high school when I'm thinking about becoming a sports journalist. And so you, you, Everything is just changing constantly. And, that, and, that, and that's the big thing for me. And the dream the dream changes constantly because of that. Because there were, if I'm, you know, I used to have a, I probably still have it on my bookshelf somewhere. Um, I used to have a book of The Best Sports Illustrated Writing in mm-hmm. 2002, 2003. And you're reading it and you're just like, oh, like Gary Smith, this is amazing. Well, that job doesn't really exist anymore unless you're going to carve out your own path. And some people are trying to do that, but that might, exist on Substack that might exist on uh, your own medium blog or whatever. you're just going to take those chances. I don't think you're going to have someone who's going to write once every six months who's, you know, someone who was born in 1990. I don't think that person is going to be fully funded by some company, some media company to do that. I just think that the the realities change every three to four years. And if your expectations stay the same, that's where you're going to end up in a weird spot.
0: Yeah, and you use an interesting expression when you were speaking about that. The dream changes. So, how did the dream change for you when you, from when you started at the Wall Street Journal to when you ended up leaving?
1: Um, I would say it became a little more multimedia in this regard. Like when I when I first started at the Wall Street Journal, I probably wanted to be like Michael Lewis. Like mm-hmm. I probably like the the thing that all that I try to do with every story is tell you why teams are winning and losing games doesn't and and, and that travels if I'm writing about European soccer I want to explain that if I'm writing about the NFL which is what I do 90% of the time I want to explain that um I do some sort of more personality type stuff and and I enjoy doing that but I think that the basis of sports information and and telling people things is they just want to know if their team is going to win or lose games and and why and so I became obsessed with that in college but then with the journal uh, it was only more so so I probably wanted to be like a a sports writer who then wrote books that explained, Hey, this team did this. I mean, exactly. Kind of like a more, more Michael Lewis without the money in tech part, right? Just sports. And I think that as the world changed and as podcasting became a bigger thing, as uh, digital video became a bigger thing. Um, I was decent enough with those to get those opportunities. And I felt like I was able to change it a little bit. And I don't think, I think that if you come in now, if you were born in 1995 and you come into sports journalism now, I think you're going to have a tough time if you're saying I'm writing only. Um, I think that, that you would limit the, the amount of places that you'd be able to go to. And you'd have to be, a, there, are, there will be those jobs, those writing only jobs, they will exist. But you've got to be in the top 1% of 1% to have a career like you could 20 years ago if you're just writing only
0: and you need to pump out an obscene quality or quantity. That's correct. Right. That. And quality. Yeah, it has to be both. You have to be top yeah. up of 1% on both ends there.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's just a different deal. And I think that, you know, I like writing once a week. I love writing once a week. Um, I think it's important to be relevant. I don't think that... Yeah, you hear. I, I know this is crazy. I'm not comparing myself to them at all. Um, we have just totally different jobs. But you hear a story about like the people who are on contract at the New Yorker to write like twice a year, and it's like I would go crazy. I would go crazy. That's just how I'm wired. I I want to write. I want to get my th- if Aaron, if Aaron Rodgers gets traded in an hour, I want to have my thoughts up there. And I and and you know I do I do a lot of work to lay the groundwork to have educated educated pieces on that and educated thoughts on that. And so um, that's just how I'm wired is to produce. And in many ways that kind of dovetails with the industry trends, but I'd want to do that even if I was born in 1960.
0: No, absolutely. And yeah, no, it's like you said, I know what I had twice a year, I donuts too, man. It's, 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 a certain, it's a certain quality to being able to like have a position where you write consistently. But uh, it's it's the other aspects that go into that, not just the actual writing, but the stuff that you have to do around it is how you carve out a role in a company in media nowadays. But to get us back on track a little bit here, I mean, why? so Wall Street Journal was huge for your development in that regard and the growth of multimedia and the opportunities that you were granted there. Then you ended up leaving. Walk us through that.
1: Okay, so uh, 2014, I kind of hit a hot streak of stories. I did a piece about how and this is a lot of this was kind of what we're talking about with, with um, being in the right place at the right time. I was just in NFL locker rooms, just trying to work as hard as I could. And I ended up getting a couple of stories. One was about Andrew Luck congratulating the people who sack him. Um, they went viral. One was about the Packers uh, playing sellers of Catan They went viral. A um, couple of, of those. And once that happened, um started to get a little more attention um, just because like the journal has like a most popular and most shared thing. And I was just noticing that we were writing the type of stories. This was all of the sports section. We were writing the type of stories that would would get pretty high on that every time we would would file. Um, And so started to get a little more attention in 2014, um, came back in 2015 for that season and and kind of continued a little bit on that um great editors great colleagues it was just just an awesome year and then after that season so I was on a plane going to Denver and for the AFC championship game after the 2015 season I got an email from this is either before playing wi-fi or there was some reason I couldn't get on wi-fi maybe it was like I was on like United or one of those crappy airlines that didn't have um that didn't have wi-fi but I, I get on the plane and it like like um, one minute before I'm about to take off I get an email from Bill Simmons it's like hey I think you would be great for what we're building here and I couldn't respond because <laughs> <I, laughs> we were taking off and I was Man, well, like well how, oh how long oh was it oh my flight? god I'm flying from New York to Denver yeah, and so you're funny. looking at I mean like four four hours probably yeah. going east to west and so I was just like okay and so I'm just sitting there just like what does he what does you want me to do? Like I had so many questions, and uh, and then yeah, it was it's like it was, it, it was fucking wild. It.
0: It's like it just emailed you. Yeah. So I had met information for four hours.
1: It's funny because I had met Bill as like a fan at the in the ho- a hotel lobby before the uh, Eagles Patriots Super Bowl. Just as a fan, I said hi. My name my name is Kevin Clark, and and he was super super nice to me, and that was the only interaction that we had until then. And it was really funny because when we were, I actually didn't tell him that we met until I kind of gotten the job. I didn't want him to be like, I don't know. I didn't want it to change. So we were, when we were meeting the first time and I went to the office and stuff. I, I wasn't going to be like, hey, we actually I introduced myself to you when I was whatever I was 16. Um and so I thought I was that, that was really funny. But he was super, super duper nice to me. So yeah, we had talked for about 15 seconds before he sent that email. Uh I guess that would be oh 12 years prior to that mm-hmm. um and so it was just awesome to connect them to connect with him and then, and then go out so the super bowl was in san francisco then i came down to la and and met with with those folks and then we hit it off and it was it was honestly honestly a no-brainer
0: why besides you know bill simmons which we- yeah
1: i i mean i would say that i have I, kind of like what we're talking about like I think that there's value now, and there certainly was in 2016, and it's only grown now. There's value in being able to do everything, and I think that in in 2021, the beautiful thing is that you can match the story with the medium. And what I mean by that is like you can do something and be like, actually, this isn't a print piece; this is a podcast, or this isn't a podcast; this is a video, um, or this is actually a narrative podcast instead of one podcast interview. Right? This is four episodes, whatever. You can do that. And you can create a better product because of it and the ringer had the infrastructure for that and i think that there's i think that you know i i the, one of the best career advice things i've ever gotten um was from a, a media executive who said any job in 2021 can be the best job in the world you can make it into the best job in the world mm-hmm. so if you're at the ringer and you're the nfl guy you can have podcast um video writing and you can use that as a launching point and do so many different things, become, you know, do X, Y, and Z that you wanna do. Because you can do so many different things at the ringer on so many different platforms, uh, it is just the perfect sort of platform if you want to analyze the game, tell stories about the game, whatever it is. Um, it's just a it's just a great place to be. It's just a creative, um, it's just a really creative place that, that that probably uh, does a, a great job of empowering people relative to other media companies. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of great media companies out there, um, but I just, I really like what the ringer has, has sort of platformed.
0: No, absolutely. And what you said about what this kind of sports media and what the ringer in particular has become for sports media in 2021 is huge. But when right. you pitch this, this was 2016, this is before it would had it been, even been yeah, yeah. yet. Yeah. And this is I mean, you know it's Bill Simmons, but this is fresh <laughs> off the Grantland thing. and I mean, were you nervous at all about jumping ship for The Wall Street Journal to go join this like brand new venture that had no guarantee of success, even if I'm sure the whole selling package was great and everything. but there still is that kind of risk factor of like, is this the right decision? Mm-hmm. Did you feel? No, that?
1: I, I wasn't nervous at all. Um, and maybe I should have been more nervous, but I thought with this with Bill, and the folks running it, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Chris Ryan, Joy Ludman, um, who I met with initially, I felt like A, there were there, were, there was going to be success, but B, even if even, even if it was, you know, it, the journal, um, you know, in, in the worst case scenario, in the worst case scenario, uh, it still would have given me really cool opportunities and everything would have been fine, even in the absolute worst case scenario. And so I wasn't nervous at all. I knew it was gonna succeed. And I knew that there were really smart people running it. And I, I honestly, I actually don't remember having any nerves that this was gonna be um, not a success.
0: Well, clearly it was the right decision. How has the company, as somebody who was essentially in from the ground floor, I mean, how has the company and the website evolved in your view over the last five years?
1: a great question. Um, I think that we obviously, since we are, uh, since we work with Spotify now, um, I think that the scope of, you know, I think that the fact that we've been able to tell stories on narrative pods the last couple of years, um, where that's been Jordan Kahn's great work, Tyler Tynes, um, I think that that's that's been a priority for us. I think that's really cool. It's not something that, that I've personally done, but I really think that's cool. And I think that there's, things are just getting bigger and bigger. And I think that the ability to bring on Ariel Hawani is amazing. I think the ability to bring on Sean McVay for, for a series is amazing. Um, last year we had, uh, Pete Carroll and, and Steve Kerr. It's stuff like that. It's using the resources that we have, um, both the influence and, you know, Spotify's connections, our connections, there's just so many different opportunities. Um, I would say that, that the beginning was, you know, we were all just kind of, scrambling, and I, I certainly was. I was just writing as much as I possibly could and just trying to uh, eke out, you know, the one thing that, and I've joked about this before, but like, it, it was completely different audiences. And I didn't know, the one thing I didn't know was that the people, and, and this was just something that got out of my brain very quickly, but the people who read you and the people who listen to you and who will watch you on whether that's slow news day, NFL show and the writing part of it, completely different audiences, mm-hmm. completely different audiences. And I had actually thought in the beginning in 2016, that, um, that th- there was going to be kind of a, a ringer core audience, and that they were, I, if I was going to say, well, as I wrote this week, and it's like, wait, no, no one. Some people don't even know I'm a writer. You know, I remember <laughs> something like, you know, and 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 people on Slow News Day who watch Slow News Day might not know whether that's on YouTube or on Twitter. Um, might not know that I have a podcast. Truly, like it's just it just people are just too busy to mm. sit around and consume everything I do. And so understanding that was probably pretty important at the beginning. Um, and understanding, I mean, how to podcast in, in, in the beginning was was tough. Um, and it wasn't, I, I kind of, I probably got caught up the speed pretty quickly, but I think that just knowing what the pacing is, knowing what works, knowing what people like to talk about um, and also kind of what you want to do. I mean, you're, you're creating, you know, I could have come out and said, you know, the Patriot should fire Bill Belichick in September of 2016, and created some crazy persona. Yeah. And you have to think very carefully about everything you're saying. For, for the most part, um, if you make one or two huge mistakes, just from a, you know, whether that's a half-baked take or whatever, um, people might stop listening to your show. Um, and so you just have to make sure that you're always doing your best, doing the research, working your ass off on even something like a podcast, that uh, you know, to me is, is I, I love doing research for the podcast. I love digging in and saying, okay, we, just did, we just recorded top 10 GMs and you're going through salary cap stuff and you're going through draft stuff. And it's like, if you're not doing that work, uh, you're gonna say something stupid on a podcast. And, and that to me is, uh, is, is something I think that more people who aren't more podcast focused should, should probably think about.
0: Definitely. How has your work as a writer evolved since you've gotten to the writer?
1: Well, it's gotten a lot longer because at the journal, we had a cap of like 1,400 words, mm. like, like absolute cap. Sometimes it'd be a 1,000 words. So I would do these pieces. They were so they, – they could be short. So like I did a piece in 2014 about NFL – there were fights in NFL locker rooms because the different – Players were at different episodes of Game of Thrones because it had come out in that summer. And so it was like, oh my God, this guy just talked about the red wedding. This guy hasn't even seen the red wedding, like that sort of thing. But you could write that at a thousand words and it'd be a full story and it'd be fine. Um, I think that if I got that story now, it would actually be woven into something that's maybe more of a 2000 word type column. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to flesh it out a little more and all that stuff. That's just the economy of the internet. And so I've, I feel like I've become a better writer. I've been able to, to sort of Flex that muscle a little bit, I would say, and 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 use some of the 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 kind of tricks that I like to use. Um, I would say that, at the journal, there's kind of an editorial voice there where they they don't want in their non column So like the stories I would write, uh, they they you know you would get edited and stuff like that. Um, to the point that, you know, I don't want to say they want every story to sound alike, but if you have too much voice. Uh, in, in a news story, they're gonna, they might take, take a little bit out. Whereas at the ringer, um, I, you know, I can, I can kind of use whatever voice I'd like to do. And I have a great relationship with my editor, uh, Connor Nevins. And I think that there's, um, there's just a little more freedom than working for a newspaper that has, you know, 2 million subscribers, most of whom are, are subscribing to, for, for earnings and stuff like that and, and business stuff. And, and I, I adore the Wall Street Journal. My wife still works there. Um, it's just a different writing environment
0: no for sure and i think it goes along with a lot of more traditional outlets where it's the voice of the outlet it's the voice of the wall street and there is some like aspect of each writer's personality that they're allowed to inject but there's only a certain amount of a certain limit to that whereas at places like the ringer and a lot of other media companies nowadays the selling point of each individual personality is what keeps audiences engaged because you know Nobody knew what The Ringer was before it started up. Right. And then it was about sort of the name recognition and the brand building and the individual brand building for that
1: helps keep a loyal audience. The brand thing was really interesting to me because there were so many NFL teams. So I won my training. So The Ringer launched on June 1st, and 2016. And then I go on my training camp tour a month and a half later. And I really, I I had a a pretty good relationship with most NFL teams and, and that kind of stuff but I really had to explain to them exactly what I was doing. And there, you know, it was, it was, cause I'm sending my asks in June and, you know, these guys are on vacation all of June and a lot of them kind of knew it existed um, and had consumed, you know, I think everybody in the NFL listens to bill and, and um, hopefully some of them <laughs> listened to me and if it, uh, you know, the NFL show was, was myself and Robert Mays. And I, I think that it, changed very quickly it flipped very quickly and people people knew who we were by 2017 is the latest i'm talking about people in the league people in life knew what the ringer was and had this brand affinity because of grantland and all the goodwill that was built up and also the fact that the the ringer um i i think started out so well and and was drawing a lot of attention um but i think people within sports it took a little bit but by 2017 i didn't have to explain it and now by now i never have to explain it i mean it totally flipped people are begging for coverage um in you know some corners and, and we can get anybody for slow news day um except patrick mahomes at this point um we've asked uh but you know that's lamar jackson baker mayfield we got canelo for for 20 minutes on slow news day like we're able to get this stuff and a lot of that is the power of the ringer
0: now i have to earn my salary so stay tuned for more press pass after this yeah and it's really interesting just like the power that just the, the idea of a brand holds nowadays. It's like, I feel like yeah. changed drastically over the last 10 years is how much influence you can gain just by being affiliated with a certain name.
1: Yes. And, and I will also say that that changes so quickly. Like that's kind of what we're talking about where the ringer didn't exist five years ago. And now I, we can get interviews with anybody um, because we're the ringer. And I would say that, you know, media companies are always rising and falling. And there, there are some brand names where they don't have the same equity as they did five years ago and couldn't get the same amount of, of guests. Um, and so it's just it's, it's just really interesting to watch how that works, but it's been a huge, huge positive for the winner.
0: No, absolutely. And now you've mentioned Slow News Day a couple of times over the last few minutes here. How did you come up with the idea of Slow News Day?
1: All right, so it wasn't all me. In fact, it was mostly not me um we had put something so jason gallagher my producer had put some stuff on tape and we were just messing around with it bill happened to stumble upon it really liked it we workshopped it i believe bill was who came up with the slow news day name because we were gonna um put it out on tuesdays or wednesdays which was the slowest part of the nfl schedule and it was it was the first year was just ringer guests and it was just like chase serrano uh, Julia Littman, Mallory Rubin, Jason Concepcion was on the pilot. Um, I don't know if that actually ever made the airwaves. We had Jason on for an actual episode as well, and then people liked it. And people, it was just a little bit different. And I was getting emails from people in, like, Jason. And I were getting emails from people, like, in television, being like, "What is like? We're intrigued by this. What is this? That we wanted. They wanted. You know, the people were ripping it off, and that was the highest form of flattery for us. And I, it was just fun. It was just a fun thing to do with my friends. Nobody was watching it that first year. We put it out on Twitter. We get 40,000 views, which is, you know, now if we put it something out on Twitter, it gets, you know, at least, you know, probably around 200. Mm-hmm. And um, but nobody was watching it, but we were having a great time and, and we we're developing an audience. And then the next year we went to the Super Bowl and we realized that people wanted to like, We we thought we were just kind of just hanging out and doing something for ourselves. And then when we got to the Super Bowl, we realized that people kind of wanted to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were able to program it with, with a a bunch of NFL players, a bunch of media members. It was really fun. And then the year after that, it it just kind of, it it just gained a lot of momentum and we were able to get Lamar Jackson. We were able to get, you know, I mean, this year, Collinsworth, Adam Schefter, Sean Payton, um, Joe Montana. I mean, just, just kind of anybody I don't. With the exception of Mahomes, I don't think there's been anybody we've tried to get that, that we haven't been able to get in some form or fashion, and I, I think that's been that's been the most fulfilling thing to me is I would want to do this. Hell, even if we never released this, I would like to talk to those guys, Richie Bozek Jason Gallagher, Jackson Saffon, um, and just like uh, Cory McConnell, and, and just sort of like have fun with them. And the fact that people seem to like it is just like one of the great dumb joys of my life. And so I, I just. I just I just think it's really fun and it's something that is is easy to do and we developed a nice little audience and I'm just I'm thrilled like I am I'm am beyond lucky that our our stupid video series has has found a nice little niche.
0: Sometimes things just happen and we you talked a lot about you know the different hats almost that you have to wear at the rate you choose to wear and so as far as the like slow news day and kind of on-camera personality aspect goes what do you say most about doing that and exploring that aspect of journalism that you couldn't have necessarily done five years ago six years ago
1: yeah and what i'd say about that is like it's slow news day is so different from the podcast or the writing and Mm -hmm. it's so fun kind of what i was talking about earlier where you can fit the story to the medium it's so fun to figure out what everything should be so i'll give you an example Carson Palmer was booked for us Super Bowl week. And I'm thinking like, okay, I can do the whole slow news day shtick and do Carson Palmer or whatever. But I think this is best served. Bruce Arians is about to play in a Super Bowl. Um, quarterbacks are asking out just like Carson Palmer did. This is actually a pod conversation, right? Like we don't need Carson Palmer looking through the newspaper. We need actual football discussion. So we made a football discussion and we put it on the podcast. We didn't do, we didn't do slow news day. Uh Sean Payton, we did the podcast and, and Slow News Day, but Sean Payton was just so good and so up for anything that it was it was hilarious. He's talking about eating a tub of ice cream after he gets eliminated by the Rams in that game and all that stuff. It was just it was just hilarious. He loved the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Um and so exploring who would be good for what. Like I had Peter King on Slow News Day and the podcast last year. And Different, different hits, and they were completely different conversations, completely different conversations. They're like, Peter almost wanted to do, like he literally said he was going to have the hottest takes in the history of Sloan News day and just came in, just firing in all cylinders, whereas on the podcast, we would be a little more reserved, and go, hey, let's talk about this for 10 minutes kind of thing, and so I think that that's the most fun thing for me, is figuring out what everything should be, and um, yeah, I, 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 I just think that it's, you know, a written piece. If I get if I get, uh, I'm making this up, but if I get Andrew Barry, the GM of the Browns for access next week, um, it's probably going to be a written piece. It's probably better if I can textualize it, all that stuff, um, and I'm able to, to build around and make other calls and stuff like that. But as I, as you saw, Baker Mayfield was available and we put him on Sunday Newsday because we know he'd be fun. He could talk about UFOs. He could talk about the draft process, whatever it was. And so that to me is the most fun thing is figuring out what story we're going to tell based on who's available and what we have at our disposal.
0: Absolutely. And then when you look towards the future and you think about the opportunities that you have at the ringer and the ways that you can keep spreading your wings as a journalist, what do you anticipate being something that you really want to improve on as you just keep moving forward day after day?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I'm always trying to, to become a better writer and and tell the definitive story about whatever i happen to be writing about what i would say is is in my mind the next frontier is trying to the nfl will always be my primary thing the ringer nfl show will always be the primary thing that i do i would say that what i would like to do is be able to peel off every once in a while not certainly the nfl is a full-time job and i have so much respect for the people Um, i it's it's a sometimes i get offended when someone tries to cover another sport and it's just like, wait a second, like, have you ever watched this sport? Like, what, what are you doing? Right. And because I realize how hard it is to cover the NFL on a daily basis that to go in and say like, Oh yeah, I'm the tennis guy now. To quit like, what? Huh? Like, no, it takes me like hours and hours and hours a week just to know what I'm talking about. And so for anyone to be like, Oh, I'm the tennis guy now. Like that to me is something that's always on my radar. Mm. But what I would say is like, I have a real passion for, other sports whether that's college football which is an easy lift I have done a lot of reporting in the past on sort of college schemes and college players and how that's how that's affected the NFL I would say that something like golf which I've written about this year um Ryan Russell and I've been doing uh, going abroad on a formula one segment uh three times in the last month and for some reason people like that um I I it's one again that's that's one of those things where it's just like I feel so lucky that Ryan Rusillo and I, we had big cat on yesterday. uh, We'll just joke around about, about formula one. People are like, this is good. It's like, wait, what? Okay. Um, And so it's a little, maybe a little more experimentation as far as the sports go, as far as, okay, maybe, maybe I continue to do F1 on Rusillo. Maybe I continue to do a little more college football golf or something over the past year that I've gotten a little more, Um, I've worked really hard to get a little more comfortable to be an expert there. Again, that's the kind of thing where it's like there are some really smart people covering golf. So I have to, I would have to work my ass off to get to a point where I can talk about it. But I feel like I've been able to do that. I've been on the the ringer golf podcast a handful of times. So maybe a little more of that, but I think that we're in a pretty good place, man. And and, and I think that there's, if I did do formula one golf, um, if if, it's not about becoming sort of rick riley 1995 and doing a different sport every week and doing baseball or whatever like i'm never going to get to that point because my my major will always be nfl but i think you can minor in a bunch of other different stuff and i kind of feel like probably if there's any next step for me that's a little bit different it would be occasionally a little more college football a little more golf a little more formula one um a little more soccer the sport I love although we have amazing soccer coverage uh and then I'm certainly not going to be any better than than the stadio guys or Ian Wright like we have Ian that's the other reason. we have Ian Wright doing a podcast for us like this is a guy who's an Arsenal legend like what the hell am I going to do <laughs> if I go on that podcast and it's like well Ian you know you scored you scored more goals than anybody in your era but uh here's what I think about about Spurs like no come on man no but I think that there are opportunities in in other areas yeah, and I
0: think the major minor metaphor that you've made is a really perfect analogy for it, especially at a place like The Ringer, where the, one of the things I've noticed is that there's just no hesitation, no barriers for all of the various talents that you guys employ to dip toes in other waters and appear on other sports podcasts and do pop culture stuff. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about The Ringer is that it sort of set that standard. Maybe it wasn't necess- it wasn't the first one to ever do that sort of thing, but it set the standard of how good it can be when you have yeah. so many multi-talented individuals
1: a hundred percent and 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 you know that was the thing when I was talking to somebody about uh, the Formula One stuff a couple of weeks ago and we were just joking around and I was like you know I kind of feel like there needs to be like a Formula One expert kind of out our beck and call so we can understand okay what's this diffuser situation with Red Bull like what's with the rear wing and and someone was just kind of like you know I, I actually think that that would stymie it a little tiny bit and it's just more about people who really work hard to understand what's going on and then just having fun doing it and the chemistry and liking the personalities and i i, I do i do think that's part of it is that we're all sort of omnivores in a lot of different ways and that we're able to say you know you look at someone like chris ryan who can appear on a hundred different podcasts, talking about a hundred different things and be a great guest on all of them. Mm. Um, he knows a hell of a lot more different things than I do. And I will never, never, ever be at Chris Ryan's level. Um, but it's, it's something that we should all probably aspire to <laughs> uh, at The Ringer where you can do a TV podcast and then you can do an NBA podcast. And then if you wanted to, you could hop on news Newsday and talk to Eagles, which he has done. Um, talk soccer, obviously, which he has done. I just think that that's the model for The Ringer is just being able to to hop on any podcast anytime and be entertaining as hell.
0: Absolutely. And one of the, I mean, as you previously mentioned, The Ringer podcast network purchased by Spotify for a pretty substantial number. And it seems like with the last year aside, with all the weird social audio locker rooms that variously popped up, podcasts are almost, they're, they're becoming, they already are and are becoming really, really important in media as an industry now just as somebody who's been kind of in the thick of that and somebody who works at the ringer which is probably the most you know uh the spotify deal was the most covered podcast deal this side of joe rogan last like three or four years you know how do you view the kind of the future of podcasts as it's in the in the in a role of media
1: great question um i don't know i mean here, here's the thing I wasn't smart enough to see the podcast boom coming when Bill was building it. Right. Like I was just sitting there at the Wall Street Very Journal TV pumping, TV out, TV. Yeah, yeah, sure. pumping out. Yeah. Pumping out 1,400 word stories about about Andrew Luck and David Bakhtiari and Aaron Rodgers. Right. So it's hard for me to predict anything in that genre because I, I just I'm not I don't pretend to be a media executive. If elected to be a media, media executive, I would not serve. Um, <laughs> and and uh and so i i it's it's hard for me to answer that i really i really don't have an answer because podcasting has changed so much and obviously you're seeing uh with some of the recent deals that if you have a brand name in podcasting you can you can uh build an audience very quickly and and do very well and and i think that that's that's been interesting to watch um you know, I'm a really big fight fan and MMA fan. And so I've, I've listened to a lot of Joe Rogan, especially when he has UFC fighters on or, or jujitsu practitioners or, or boxers, which he has that on, um, intermittently. And so I kind of understand the value of, um, not only serving your, your niche, which, which Joe Rogan does, but also obviously the, the general population. If Joe Rogan just did a UFC podcast, I promise you, he would not have sold for that much money. Um, and so it's, it's been interesting to watch sort of how that develops, and I just think the biggest thing is developing an audience and communicating with your audience, and 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 embracing it, and and knowing not only what they want, but um, knowing that that's that's always changing. And it's kind of like what we we're talking about previously, where you know, listen, if I really like doing green rooms, I hopped on one with Van Lathan after the the Logan Paul Floyd Mayweather fight. I hopped on a couple with Bill for the Masters and then the U.S. Open. I really like that, and I think that can be really fun. Almost like what you know, you bring people up and have them ask questions and and get get viewpoints you would normally get. The one thing you can't do in a podcast is bring in audience members. And you know, we have some of our podcasts now have voicemails and stuff like that. Um, that's a little different than bringing people in in real time and and having them ask questions. And so there's there's a there's a freshness in that. So I really do like the locker room thing, and I think that that could be that's something we can build on. But I do think that the the podcast thing. It's just so ever-changing to predict what pods will look like in in 2024 20, is really hard, except to say, I'll be doing it in some way.
0: All right, Kevin, I have one last question for you, and it sort of relates to what you were just talking about, about your inability to forecast the podcast market. But it just is an overarching you know, idea about this industry and this job that you now have and the way that you worked your way up the ladder in a much different way than a lot of other people have. Um What's something about this job that you know now that you kind of wish you knew back when you were starting out at the Sunset winter?
1: Oh wow. Oh my gosh. I wish I I wish I had prepared for this. Um, great question. I would say number 1 is do not overthink athlete interactions. That'd be number 1. Like I came into him and be like, "Oh my god, what's Dontre Willis going to think of me at his locker?" And the answer is Dontre Willis is not it's like madman <laughs> joke. Dontre Willis is not thinking about you at all. You're doing your job, he's doing his. That's really important. I think young journalists get really intimidated sometimes. Ooh, I have to ask a question to Aaron Rodgers. Nine times out of 10, he will answer the question based on the merits of the question, not, not whether or not he knows who you are or likes you. I mean, like, first of all, Aaron Rodgers answer any question in group setting, obviously. Um, but I just think that a lot of times There's an intimidation factor that I certainly had coming into the into NFL locker rooms, MLB locker rooms, NBA locker rooms, and and these guys see so many different faces in the locker room all the time that unless you're a huge name, um, you're kind of one of many. And so, never be intimidated by that. Don't be shy. I mean, that that was a. That, that was some, some great advice I got early on is when you're in these these cities or you're in a training camp tour, or whatever, don't don't just say, Hey, can I get the, the third linebacker? Like just try to try to write the best story you can. And the worst thing that they're gonna do is say no. And like rejection is a huge part of this industry. I send so many emails asking and talk to a GM, talk to a coach, whatever. And you have to know that um that you're gonna get rejected a handful of times. And you know, I've I've never interviewed Bill Belichick one-on-one, but I ask all the time whenever I'm writing a story. Um, he doesn't give very many one-on-ones and the people he does give to, he's known them for 30 years in most cases, in most cases, um, or they're local. But as far as national guys go, it's, it's pretty hard to get on a schedule. I'm okay with that. I'm going to keep trying because one day maybe it'll happen um, for a big story. And and the worst you get is Joshua Daniels or, you know, whatever. Um, and so when you, ask, when you ask them. So I think that there's... Um, I'm you know, I'm trying to think what, what else I I wish I knew. Um, I would say, and this is, this is a weird one, but I actually, one of the biggest things that, that shaped maybe the first year of my coverage was I heard a story from a Dolphins employee who Mm. said that Nick Saban looked at the, the, uh, I think there was some practice or some NFL event, maybe it was even a combine. And Nick Saban looked at all the reporters and was like, why do these guys, why do so many people, like, not dress well? Like, why do they just wear, like, cargo shorts and a t-shirt? And uh, and, and the person was like, I don't know why you're complaining about this. And he's like, don't they have any respect for their job? And I was like, "What? A, first of all, what a weird thing to say. <laughs> but then on the other hand, like, I actually did start, like, I really did. I was 19 or whatever. And I just started dressing up a little bit because of that, because it's like, you actually can't, I'm not saying wear a suit and a tie to practice. Mm-hmm. Do not do that. But I am saying that in so if you want to develop um, relationships or, or just make sure you're not eliminated by some weird thing, I would say that putting a little, I, I was, I dressed very poorly at the very beginning. And then I, I kind of put myself together a little bit more. And I actually think in some weird ways that that tended to help in, you know, if you're deal if you're getting an extra, one half of one percent in a in a story in building stories over the course of the year it's worth it so i went out and bought some nice clothes after hearing that story and uh, i don't know if it worked or not but I, I think about it a lot
0: nick saban inspired kevin clark to dress better that's a headline right there
1: it is it <laughs> is
0: <laughs> uh, all right great stuff kevin thank you so much for coming on the press pass podcast man i really appreciate it. that was a really interesting conversation and i hope wish you the best of luck going forward and i think you know the ringer's set to do some good stuff and it was amazing being able to talk to you about you know the path that's on and the path that's going towards
1: awesome thank you so much man
0: yeah appreciate it and thank you listeners as always for tuning into the press pass podcast i am your host liam McEwen. signing up